0: made this um really nice uh sorbet this uh cranberry sorbet for Thanksgiving.
1: Ooh, that sounds it good. It's very
0: good. I made a rosemary syrup to put in it. So, it was it was like a citrusy cranberry sauce, herby. Uh, so like
1: yeah. when you say citrusy, was it like A zesty, citrusy, or well, I
0: used lemon and orange zest and um orange juice and Malibu. Malibu. Yes, I was telling um Sheridan and
1: Heather about your mom's boozy, uh 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 sweet potato casserole.
0: Oh, it's so good.
1: So good. And they were like, "How?" I was like, "Malibu rum." And Sheridan was like, "That doesn't sound like that would taste good."
0: It doesn't, buddy. It's so good. Yes. It pairs so well with the orange juice that we put in it. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably why I forgot yeah. you put um, orange juice in it. Yeah. it It's really just sweet potatoes, brown sugar, orange juice, and Malibu with maybe one or two other things, but that's about it.
1: Fascinating combination.
0: Yeah, my dad poured bourbon on top of my cranberry sorbet. He said it was great. I tried it. Uh, no.
1: No. No, I no. feel like those two would not mix well together. No. They a didn't. rum? Yeah. A bourbon?
0: Right. It's my grandma talking oh, to Oh, okay.
1: My window was open, or is open, so I thought something was outside. That's what I was like.
0: I was like, hey, I'm about to record. And she said, okay, I'm not making any noise. Five <laughs> minutes later. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to keep that.
1: (laughs) Uh. She's a
0: dinosaur now. and that is grace i'm grace and that is rachel welcome welcome back shit you go (laughs) (laughs) welcome to the podcast we are
1: myths and misfortunes thank you for joining us again this lovely week after the week after thanksgiving
0: the week after the week after The week go. after the week after, yep. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. For us, it is the week of. <laughs> it is the so. week of, as we are recording. Um, I woke We finally up got into the habit of getting way ahead.
1: <laughs> way ahead. It's a good habit to have. It was um, an accident. <laughs> it was an accident. Um, yeah, now that we have endured our food comas, we are preparing for the rest of the holidays this year. Yeah. Um, I know I, for a fact, woke up 30 minutes late because of my food coma this morning.
0: I literally woke up at 10.30. I could not sleep last night.
1: Oh, no. I wonder why. I don't know. Okay, so where are we this week? Today, of all days.
0: Of all days. Of all days. Oh uh, yes. We are in Indianapolis. What? Indiana. Okay. Um, uh, my sources are Wikipedia and Britannica Ooh. Ah, ah. Britannica ah, ah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So before the area was colonized, the Delaware, Miami um, and tribes traded, hunted, and lived in the area. And mm-hmm. after the American Revolution, the influx of white immigrants brought a lot of war um, with, you know, indigenous tribes. The conflicts continued until the 1811 Battle of Tippecanoe, which was won by the future President William Henry Harrison, um, following the world- War worl. Following the World Wide Web. <laughs> <laughs> following the War of 1812, the U.S. government secured the Treaty of St. Mary's in 1818, which was drafted as part of a large-scale effort by the U.S., to purchase land from indigenous people, moving them to lands west of the Mississippi River. <laughs> yeah, you'll notice my say <laughs> Purchase. <laughs> so, Indiana—it's generally thought to be land of the Indians. Um, well, is that really how
1: they came up with that?
0: Supposedly. Oh. Yeah. Okay. It, Indiana was admitted on December 11th, 1816 as the 19th State of the Union. And Indianapolis was founded in 1821 as a state capital, which it officially became in 1825.
1: Oh, good. A cool thought up four years later. I can't math.
0: Yeah. Sometimes you have to build up a city before you, it can really <laughs> be capital. <you> know? <laughs> True. Yeah. True. We all, Indianapolis wasn't built in a day. So... <laughs> Indianapolis had become a major rail center by the start of the American Civil War in 1861, and this helped to double the population between 1860 and 1870. Mm-hmm. Beginning in the late 1800s, meatpacking and metalworking became major industries, which and metalworking led to the development of automobile manufacturing, which was then important to the economy city. And before I actually get into the 1900s, i want to mention that Indianapolis printed the nation's first illustrated black newspaper in 1888 the newspaper was the indianapolis freeman uh, which was circulated nationally and considered by a lot of people to be the leading black journal in america and it was actually called the harper's weekly of the united states black community which i thought was really cool that is really cool indianapolis motor speedway opened in 1909 in suburban speedway as a test track for local automobile plants The first 500-mile auto race was held there in 1911, and although automobile manufacturing eventually left the city, the Indianapolis 500, or Indy 500, has become one of the world's most, like, most popular auto races, which have giant crowds. There was an Indy 500. (laughs) There was an Indy 500, actually, in, um, oh, where was it? it was the in Spartan Kentucky, kentucky. Speedway? Yeah. Yes, and that's where we went to my first concert, just the Press. So, um, while Indianapolis had some segregated elementary schools in the early 1900s, high schools weren't segregated until 1927, and during the time between 1921 and 1928, the Ku Klux Klan grew its power and influence in the city and the state, both with legitimately More than 40% of native-born white males in Indianapolis claiming membership in the Klan.
1: And that's why we don't date people from Indianapolis. (laughs) (laughs) That's not why, but...
0: (laughs) So they started losing power once their leader was convicted of rape in 1925, and the also corrupt governor uh, refused to pardon him. Huh. Yeah, it's important to know that while they lost power, the effects of the KKK on Indianapolis and Indiana in general um, are lasting. Mm, of course. Yeah. In 1970, the Indiana Black Expo was organized. The, the Indiana Black Expo Summer Celebration is the largest uh, ethnic cultural event in the United States. Mm-hmm. So, this 10-day event is held in, has normally is held in the Indiana Convention Center, as well as you know other places around Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. And it draws African-Americans to uh, Indianapolis from about, both around the state and the country. The Black Expo has provided networking, educational, career, and cultural opportunities for its guests. Like, over 350,000 people participate mm-hmm. in this. So, here's some cool tidbits about Indianapolis, because I just wanted to throw some of this in here. Yes. It's one of the most populous cities in the world that's not located on navigatable water, although it is, like, a big hub for, like, um, also, obviously, like, highways, um, trains, and air transportation. Mm-hmm. Alright, so the Children's Museum of Indianapolis is the largest museum of its kind in the world and is one of the most frequently visited museums in the country. White River State Park, west of downtown, contains a number of attractions. There's the Indianapolis 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 Zoo and the Idle Museum of American Indians and Western Art. Uh, that's located there, which sounds really cool. Mm-hmm. The city served as one of the predominant stops on the Underground Railroad. And up to the time of the Great Migration in the early 20th century, Indianapolis had a higher black population, nearly 10%, um, than any other city in northern states. Because according- they all
1: left Kentucky. Cont- Hooky.
0: Well, according <laughs> to my research, today Indianapolis is the is the least segregated city in the northern United States according to a University of Wisconsin Milwaukee study with mm-hmm. 25% of the population living on a city block with both white and black residents, which I can't say if that's true today or not, but it was a fact it, I found on the internet or <laughs> <a fact laughs> I found on the internet. Fact.
1: You know the internet is full huh? of facts. Yeah, it's The full internet of is
0: full of them, yeah. Indianapolis is a hub for arts, culture, sports, and education with a lot of places to visit, and normally I would tell you a lot more about them, but I feel like people should be staying home right now, so I'm just gonna cut that
1: part. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why I'm always like, so after the pandemic.
0: <laughs> yeah, I just, there were a lot, and I I don't know, like, I didn't want to, like, go through and figure out, like, what was open, what was closed, what... That's true. All yeah. of that stuff, so. But that was my history of Indianapolis. Woo! Okay. Fun. So, then we
1: will just move on to my story, which is, I just want to say, a very sad story. Um, oh. And I am going to mention my story does compare. Uh, contain a brief mention of sexual assault that may be triggering for some listeners so if that pertains to you I really really advise that you fast forward about 30 40 minutes to Grace's story just you know to be safe. Okay so like I said very sad story uh, that is the story of the torture and murder of Sylvia Likens
0: Ooh, yeah so, I forgot about this I saw yeah. it on the list and I forgot all about it And I do
1: actually want to mention, the reason that I found out about this story is because I watched a video on YouTube about these people who were exploring around the house before it was torn down and replaced with something. Mm. And there were screams coming from the basement saying, help me, help me.
0: Oh, what? Yeah, so- Where did you find this video?
1: Um, it's on YouTube, it's on one of the channels that I watch, like, a top five, like, a Nuke's top five, or Slapped Ham, or something like that, it, a th- You will have to find that and
0: send that to me. Yeah,
1: I'll have to find it at some point, and I'm sure I will, it just, um, it was super crazy, and then it went into, like, you know, a very brief mention of what happened, and I was like, oh, I should cover that.
0: Yeah, dang.
1: Yeah, but that house has since been torn down, and right. it's no longer a house, so I don't know if there's anything still going on there or not. Okay. So, my sources are Wikipedia, IndianapolisMonthly.com, ChillingCrimes.com, Medium.com, Murderpedia.org, AllThat'sInteresting.com, History101, LawJustia.com, and ABCNews.go.com.
0: I feel like it's been a while since we used Murderpedia.
1: Yeah. I wanted to check and see if this actually was on Murderpedia, and it was, so uh, I went with it. So, Sylvia Marie Likens was born on January 3rd, 1949, to Lester and Elizabeth Likens. She was the third of the family's five children. Her siblings were Diana and Daniel, the older set of twins, and Ginny and Benny, her younger twins.
0: Ginny and Benny. Ginny and
1: Benny. It's so cute, right? (laughs) In 1965, Sylvia had just turned 16. She loved rollerblading and the Beatles. It's 2020. We all still kind of like the Beatles, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she had long, wavy brown hair and a smile that lit up the room, despite missing a front tooth, thanks to an accident with her brother. Oh, you yeah, darn those brothers! She helped to care for her younger sister, Jenny, who had a limp due to childhood polio. Even enjoying spending her babysitting money on shared trips to the rollerblading rink with her. She would fasten one skate to Jenny's good, sturdy foot and hold her hand so that Jenny could skate with the other kids. Mm -hmm. Just so sweet.
0: That is sweet.
1: Unfortunately, Sylvia's parents spent a lot of time separated. In fact, the mother had just abandoned their father and technically kidnapped the girls however a short yeah however a short time later on june 3rd 1965 their mother was arrested for shoplifting this left young sylvia to take care of her sister on her own until darlene mcguire a friend of the girls introduced them to paula and stephanie benazowski Mm. at arsenal technical high school paula invited the girls back to her house to meet her mother gertrude benazowski Upon hearing of the girl's circumstances, Gertrude invited the girls to stay overnight. Now, a little bit about Gertrude. She was born as Gertrude Van Fossen in 1912, being the third of six children. A lot isn't known of her childhood, except that she was closer to her father than her mother. This rift between her and her mother widened even more with the death of her father in 1940. Five years later, at the age of 16, Gertrude dropped out of school to marry 18-year-old Deputy John Banaszewski. The two had four children before John's volatile temper caused the two to separate 10 years later. Mm. After her husband, you know, was beating her for annoying him, Gertrude was granted full custody for her children.
0: Oh, okay.
1: I'm sure that wasn't the only reason, but, you know, physical abuse has a lot to do with it.
0: Yeah.
1: Within a year of her divorce... Gertrude met and married a man named Edward Guthrie, who divorced her only three months later because he was tired of having her children around.
0: Wow. You know,
1: an A-plus kind of guy, right there. Shortly after this, Gertrude remarried her husband, number one, and stayed together with him for seven more years, birthing two more children. Wow. The couple then divorced permanently in 1963. Around this time, 37-year-old Gertrude met, began an affair, and moved in with 23-year-old Dennis Lee Wright. Oh, wow. Despite the age difference, he was also an abusive asshole. Cool. Uh, She became pregnant by him twice, suffering a miscarriage once. The surviving pregnancy resulted in the birth of Dennis Jr., Gertrude's last child. Shortly after his birth, Dennis Sr. abandoned Gertrude and the family. This left her essentially destitute as she struggled to feed her now seven children and keep a roof over their heads. Shit. Even the occasional child support checks uh, from her first husband didn't help a whole lot. So she began doing odd jobs for people in the neighborhood and town, such as babysitting and doing her neighbor's laundry. When she found out her 17-year-old daughter was pregnant... With a middle-aged married man's child, their financial problems were worsened. Oh, no. Around this time is also when Gertrude's health began declining. She was chronically ill with many unidentified illnesses. Um, She ceased proper hygiene and barely ate. Mm. All of this began to affect her outward appearance, aging her prematurely with a receding hairline, sunken eyes, and overall skeletal appearance. Keep in mind, she's still only 37. How? Uh, she married young. Hold on. What year? Okay. 1965. What year was she born? 1929, so. Yeah, okay. So, yeah. Actually, 36. But, yeah, 37.
0: That sounds like way longer than it actually is. That's why I got thrown off. I was like, hold on, hold on. Hold up. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right.
1: With all of her financial problems, um, when Sylvia and Jenny's father tracked the girls down, she made him an offer. The girl's older sister was married and living close by, their two brothers were being left in the care of their grandparents, and Sylvia and Jenny had nowhere that they could feasibly go once their father, Lester, found work with a touring carnival. For $20 a week, Gertrude would keep the girls in her care and treat them as her own children. Mm. It's not known for sure whether or not Lester or Gertrude came up with the idea of boarding the girls. However, had he inspected the home before the two agreed, the girls might not have stayed. The Banazuski home had no stove or microwave, Microwave, only a single hot plate in order to cook. There were only enough mattresses in the house for half the people living there, so three or four. Yeah. Not enough for the seven already living eight already living there. Right. The only food items available in the house were bread and crackers. Most of the home was also caked in thick layers of dust, which not going to lie that it should bother me because I'm kind of allergic, but it doesn't bother me as much as not having the food. Yeah, I think... And there were only enough plates and utensils for three people. Dang. Yeah. So, but I mean, this is 1960s. It's harder to live than and she doesn't a have a job age. she's doing right. an odd jobs she has seven children
0: right she's on her it, own
1: yeah she's on her own she doesn't have any help any help she's i mean they're all still technically underage children who can't do anything they have to go to school yeah yeah so the first few weeks the two girls were there everything was normal they attended school church and did normal teenage social functions in fact the benezuski home was the kind of home in the neighborhood that any child would come and go to as they pleased. Mm. Here, they had their safe space away from their parents where they could get away with literally anything. Smoking, drinking, raunchy sex talk, hell, even murder. Mm. However, (laughs) spoilers. However, when the next $20 payment failed to come, Gertrude through a fit. She screamed at the girls, I took care of you two bitches for nothing. She then forced the girls to lay across her bed with their skirts and underwear down around their ankles while she beat their bottoms with a thick leather belt that once belonged to her first husband. Because of her sister's vulnerabilities, Sylvia told Gertrude that she would take Jenny's punishments too, now, and, you know, from then on.
0: Yeah.
1: And this is, this is when everything just began to focus on Sylvia. So, shortly after this incident, Lester and Elizabeth arrived to check on their daughters. The girls claimed that all was going well, not even alluding to the beating that they had just received. The next week, the two girls went around the neighborhood collecting Coca-Cola bottles in order to sell to get money for candy. When they came home with the candy, Gertrude accused them of stealing. When Sylvia explained what they had done in order to buy the candy, Gertrude accused her of lying and made her go through another beating on her rear end, this time with a literal fraternity paddle. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. She had one of those. That was a thing. Okay. Okay. Shortly after this, Gertrude's children came to her after church claiming that they were disgusted by the amount of food that they had seen Sylvia eating at the recent church social. Mm. G- well, I have to say, if all you have is bread and crackers...
0: You're going to gorge yourself anytime you're going- that you are around food.
1: Right. If you don't have
0: any food.
1: Right. Gertrude then told Sylvia how angry she was that Sylvia would do something to ruin her physical appearance. Jesus.
0: As if beating them wouldn't change their physical appearance. Right.
1: She then forced Sylvia to eat a hot dog piled with condiments, literally spices, Mm. mustard, um, relish, the whole shebang. And when Sylvia threw up, Gertrude then forced her to scoop that up and eat it.
0: Oh, God
1: again Lester and Elizabeth came to town to check on the girls and once again the girls said nothing to them regarding it
0: i mean, that sucks i know i know they're probably just thinking like i don't want to make the situation even harder for my parents like and i don't
1: so i'm sure that could have been one of the things going through their heads but speculation is that the girls feared that things would only get worse yeah If they told their parents what was going on.
0: Or that they probably wouldn't be believed.
1: Or that. So, unfortunately, things do go from bad to worse. When in August of 1965, Gertrude hears Sylvia speaking of a boyfriend she had in California. Gertrude burst into a fit of rage, calling Sylvia a prostitute, and informed the entire house that Sylvia was pregnant because she let a boy touch her vagina. Oh my god. Which you have seven children. Hopefully you know this is not how that works.
0: No. But no. that's definitely a way to control your children and you pit them against one another.
1: Yeah. She then physically attacked Sylvia, kicking her in the crotch. After the attack, when Sylvia had attempted to sit down, Paula, who was originally a friend... And keep in mind, Paula is the pregnant one, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: threw Sylvia out of the chair and informed her, you ain't fit to sit in chairs. And the only reason I bring up that Paula is the pregnant one is that Gertrude, while she, one, shouldn't be doing this, is a total hypocrite because she treated Sylvia this way and not her own daughter. Yeah. In fact, I mean, no child should be treated like that. It's literal abuse, but she's a hypocrite. Absolutely. From then on, Gertrude only allowed Sylvia to sit in chairs with permission. This is also when she began allowing her children to be equally abusive towards her. She even encouraged it. The Banaszewski children would practice karate on her, throwing her into walls and downstairs, put out lit cigarettes on her skin, burning her, by the way, like severe burns, Cutting open her skin, rubbing salt into the wounds, and then cleaning her in a scalding hot bath.
0: Jeez. Oh.
1: As an act of revenge, Ginny Sylvia and Ginny told her class that Paula and Stephanie were having sex for money. <gasps> Which I wanna point out, not a bad thing. It's an honest way to earn a living. <laughs> but especially but also... at the
0: time with like there, uh, with there being such a stigma with that, I could understand. Yeah. Yeah.
1: With there being, with there being one, with there being such a stigma and with the fact that her, th- their mother mm-hmm. is calling Sylvia out on this when she's not doing it. Yeah. Um, when Stephanie's boyfriend, Coy Hubbard, discovered what had been said, he came to the Banaszewski home and beat Sylvia. In fact, this kind of became a ritual. Hubbard made frequent visits to the home where Gertrude would instruct him to practice his judo on
0: her. Oh, my God. Hmm. I hate this story.
1: We got six pages to go. Buckle in. Yeah. (laughs) This is also around the same time that the family began turning Sylvia's friends against her. Gertrude informed 13-year-old Anna Sisko that Sylvia had been telling the boys at school that Anna's mother would perform sexual acts for $5. Gertrude led Anna to Sylvia and directed her to attack her. And this, (laughs) she did. This also happened with another friend, this time one of Paula's whose name was Judy Duke. Gertrude claimed that Sylvia was spreading rumors about Judy's mother and egged the girls on into fist fighting. Gertrude then instructed Judy to join in but when she refused, Gertrude proceeded to beat the ever-living shit out of Sylvia until Ginny agreed to punch her once. Oh my God. Like, pitting her own sister against her when her sister so does not want to do it. Yeah. This whole time, I'm, like, sitting here thinking, so how has no one seeing this? Why is no one questioning why the 16-year-old is coming to school and church bruised and beaten and all cut up? Surely there's someone who sees this, right? And in August of 1965, the house next door to the Banaszewskys was purchased by Phyllis and Raymond Vermillion. The couple noticed how many children were in and around their neighboring home, and as a way to kind of introduce themselves to the neighborhood and get to know everyone, they threw a barbecue. During the barbecue, Phyllis spotted Sylvia walking around the yard with a very noticeable black eye. And when she questioned the family about it, Paula proudly announced that she had been the one who had given it to her. Then, in front of Gertrude and the Vermilions, Paula threw steaming hot water in Sylvia's face. Fuck. Despite the fact that this was seen by completely new people and her neighbors... This wasn't reported by the uh, to the authorities. Mm. Two months later, Phyllis then visited Gertrude in order to borrow something. Within a few minutes of arriving, she noticed that Sylvia was wandering around in a daze, with swollen lips and another black eye, one actually swollen su- shut. Paula again had some sort of complex. Decided that she was going to show Phyllis how this happened to Sylvia. She took off her belt and began absolutely beating the crap out of Sylvia again. Do you think Phyllis reported this? I'm gonna go with no. No. Mm Mm-mm. Shortly after this incident, Sylvia came home from school and informed Gertrude that she needed a sweatsuit for gym class. Gertrude then told Sylvia that they could not afford one, which, rough times, yeah. Sylvia, needing one for school, stole it from the school. When Gertrude inquired how she got it, eventually Sylvia admitted to stealing it. Gertrude thought that it was a great idea to teach Sylvia a lesson about stealing and proceeded to burn the tip of Sylvia's fingers with a lit cigarette because she had sticky fingers. Oh God, that's... Makes sense to burn the fingers, apparently. She then made Sylvia bend over so she could whip her with a belt. And honestly, this is when she began being used as the ashtray and... Yeah. Yeah. It was a reminder not to steal. Shortly after this, Sylvia once again went out to find and sell Coke bottles. Um, Great way to make some money, especially when the family you're living with has none to support themselves, let alone you. However, when she returned, Gertrude yelled at her, claiming that she had been prostituting herself. She then dragged Sylvia into the living room and forced her to strip naked in front of her sons and several of the neighborhood boys by threatening to beat Jenny. <sighs> Once she was naked, Gertrude handed Sylvia an empty Coke bottle and forced her to masturbate with it in front of the boys. This was obviously very harmful to Sylvia's mental and physical health, something, some things you just don't put up there. Yeah. S- Sylvia became unable to control her Bodily functions as a result of this forced. Yeah. Yeah. And as a result, Gertrude deemed that she was unfit to live upstairs and locked her in the basement. The lack of toilet then forced Sylvia to defecate and urinate all over the floor. (laughs) But saying this, Gertrude began calling Sylvia a dirty girl and began a bath regimen to clean Sylvia. This consisted of filling the clawfoot bathtub with scalding hot water, tying Sylvia's wrists and ankles together, and dunking her in. And this was done arbitrarily. You know, it wasn't like an everyday thing the same time every day. No. Sometimes it was three or four times a day, sometimes not at all. And following the baths to add insult to injury... This is when Paula began to rub salt all over Sylvia's now raw body from, you know, those nice second-degree burns from a scalding hot bath. The Banaszewski children took this opportunity to make a little bit of money. They would charge neighborhood children a nickel each to gawk at the naked Sylvia or to push her down the stairs. She was kept constantly naked and was fed very little, if at all. When she was fed, it was often by some bizarre method like eating soup with her hands. No spoon, no bowl, just eating soup with our hands. And on many occasions, Gertrude and her son, John Jr., would make Sylvia clean the basement by allowing her to eat her own feces and drink her own urine. Mm. When things began getting this bad, Jenny made an attempt to reach out to their older sister, Diana. Jenny wrote to her about everything that was going on and begged her to call the police and have them come. However, Diana ignored the letter, thinking that Jenny was just unhappy with being punished and making up stories that she could come and, and live with her. Yeah. Who, who doesn't want to go and live with their cool older sister? And another child went home after seeing Sylvia like this and told her mother that they were beating and kicking her. To which the mother replied, that's just what happens when someone is punished. So at this point, so many people know, but they just don't know to the full extent. They, they think that Sylvia is just a ob- disobedient child who is constantly being punished. Not that she's being literally tortured by the family and entire neighborhood. At some point, Diana does go to try and at least visit her sisters. However, Gertrude refused to allow her in the house. She informed Diana that the girl's father had contacted her and told her to not allow Diana into the home. Diana, of course, questioned this because that just made no sense. But then when when the family threatened to call the police and arrest her for trespassing, she, you know, she, of course, had to leave. Right. But she knew that something was fishy and stayed close by, hiding near the house until she spotted Jenny outside. Diana then approached her youngest sister and asked what was going on. And Jenny told her that she wasn't allowed to talk to her and then ran away. This, of course, alarmed Diana, who then contacted social services. When they arrived at the Banaszewski home, Gertrude informed them that she had kicked Sylvia out for being physically unclean and a prostitute. Mm. She then got Jenny alone long enough and told her that if she told the social worker the truth, Jenny would then be joining her sister naked in the basement. Fearing for herself, Jenny informed the social worker that her sister did indeed run away. That social worker then took this and left filing a report that stated no more calls needed to be made to the Banaszewski home. Mm. On October 21st, Gertrude had um, John Jr. and Stephanie bring Sylvia upstairs from the basement and tie her to a bed. Gertrude told her if she could hold her bladder through the night, then she would be allowed to sleep upstairs again. She's tied to a bed. Did you take her to the bathroom first? The next morning when Gertrude went to check on Sylvia, she found the girl and mattress soaked in urine. She forced her up and into the living room where she made Sylvia undress in front of the neighborhood boys again and masturbate with that empty Coca Cola bottle.
0: Jesus.
1: When she was finished, Sylvia was allowed to redress. However, only a few moments later, Gertrude brought up the lies that Sylvia and Ginny told about Paula and Stephanie. She declared, You have branded my daughter, so I will brand you. Poor Sylvia was forcibly stripped again tied down, and gagged while another of the children in the room heated a sewing needle with a series of matches. When the needle was, li- was literally orange, Gertrude began to carve and burn the letters I and part of the letter M into Sylvia's stomach. She then handed the needle off to Ricky Hobbs, who seemed to take pleasure in being her protege,
0: mm.
1: and instructed him to continue carving the letters out, I'm a prostitute, and proud of it. At one point, Hobbs even paused to ask Gertrude how to spell prostitute. Like, he's not even questioning he's doing this. What was left um, was carves and third-degree burns, where the phrase was etched into her skin. The damage was so bad that even modern surgery today would not be able to correct it. After the etching was done, Gertrude left the room, leaving Sylvia tired, gagged, and naked. At this point, Ricky, Paula, and Shirley decided to give Sylvia another tattoo. An S in the middle of her chest. Ricky etched the bottom half of the S, then either choked or changed his mind. Um, he then ordered Jenny to carve the top half of the S, but she, you know, of course, refused. This is her sister. No, not doing that. So Ricky then ordered Shirley, his 10-year-old sister, to finish the job. Now, surely she, she actually did choke. She accidentally carved the curve backwards, forming a three rather than an S on mm. Sylvia's chest. Gertrude then re entered the room, looked at Sylvia, and said, What are you going to do now, Sylvia? You can't get married now. You can't undress in front of anyone. What are you going to do now? Sylvia was ungagged in order to respond to Gertrude with, I guess there's nothing I can do. It's on there. Coy Hubbard then took Sylvia back to the basement where he proceeded to use her for judo practice. In the middle of the night, Ginny snuck down there to see her sister. And Sylvia told her, I'm going to die. I can tell. Shortly after Ginny had gone back upstairs, Gertrude came down and brought Sylvia upstairs to sleep in one of the beds. She was allowed to sleep until noon the following day when Gertrude woke her up to give her a warm, not scalding hot, soapy bath. Afterwards... Gertrude dictated a note that she had Sylvia write. It read, Dear Mr. and Mrs. Likens, I went with a gang of boys in the middle of the night, and they said that they would pay me if I would give them something, so I got in a car, and they all got what they wanted. And when they got finished, they beat me up and left sores on my face and all over my body. They also put on my stomach I am a prostitute and proud of it. I have done just about everything that I could do to... Just to make Gertie mad and cause Gertie more money than she's got, I've tore up a new mattress and peed on it. I've also cost Gertie doctor bills that she really can't pay and made Gertie a nervous wreck and all of her kids and that's how it ends. She didn't sign it. she didn't have Sylvia sign it, so that's 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 way too formal of a start to a letter to your parents, yeah. And she didn't sign it! There are some obvious flaws in whatever scheme Gertrude was coming up with. Right. When Sylvia finished writing the letter, Gertrude, now I have to say Gertrude, began to plan where to take Sylvia to leave her and die. The forest or nearby garbage dump. When Sylvia heard this, she gathered all of her remaining energy and ran for the front door. Unfortunately, she was so weak from her emaciated and mutilated state that Gertrude caught her before she could reach the door. Once Gertrude was able to calm Sylvia down, she brought her to the kitchen where where she proceeded to make her toast. Sylvia did attempt to eat it, but found that she was unable to swallow. Gertrude, angered by this, took down the kitchen curtain rod and smacked Sylvia in the mouth with it. John then took Sylvia down to the basement and tied her up once again while Gertrude prepared a plate of crackers. When she offered them to Sylvia, she replied, feed it to the dog, it's hungrier than I am. Gertrude once again harmed Sylvia and repeatedly punched her in the stomach before leaving the basement because she refused to eat crackers that she literally couldn't swallow. The next day, October 24th, Gertrude came down to the basement Again, and attempted to bludgeon Sylvia with a chair. However, she missed and broke the chair against the wall. Wow. She then... (laughs) This is the best part. She then attempted to beat her with a paddle, yet like a scene out of a cartoon, the paddle misses Sylvia completely, arches wide, and smacked Gertrude in the face, leaving her with a black eye. Oh, nice. Nice, yeah. To prevent Gertrude from hurting herself anymore... Coy Hubbard stepped in and beat Sylvia unconscious with a broomstick. Over the course of the night and into the following morning, Sylvia beat at the basement floor with the scoop end of a shovel, trying to get any attention from neighbors or passerbyers. It is later reported that the neighbors did in fact hear something, but they didn't report it. Um, On October 26, Sylvia was no longer able to speak intelligibly or even coordinate her movements. Gertrude had her move to the kitchen once more in an attempt to have her eat a donut and drink some milk. When she was unable to bring the glass of milk to her lips, Gertrude threw her to the floor. Sylvia was then taken back down to the basement where she very quickly became delirious, moaning and mumbling, unable to get past the fourth letter in the alphabet upon the request of Paula. By that afternoon, a crowd of neighborhood children had once again begun begun to form around her. She attempted to point at several people in the crowd, naming names of people she could recognize. She was then given a rotten pear, to which she unsuccessfully tried to bite into. Mm. Ginny then politely reminded her sister that she had lost one of her front teeth when she was a child. Luckily, or, you know, unluckily, Ginny had to leave the basement to perform some gardening duties for some of the neighbors for a little extra pocket change. After repeatedly messing herself throughout the day and in an attempt to clean her, John Jr. sprayed her with a garden hose that was brought into the house. Sylvia again attempted to escape up the stairs, but collapsed before she could get very far. Stephanie decided that Sylvia could really use a warm, soothing bath. Stephanie's gaining a consciousness now, I guess. So she brought Sylvia upstairs and laid her into the bath fully clothed. When they pulled her out a short time later, they realized that she wasn't breathing. Stephanie then proceeded to give Sylvia CPR, but by this time, she was already gone. Ricky Hobbs then walked into the house and found Stephanie crying and holding Sylvia's lifeless body. Initially, Gertrude felt that this was a ruse and struck Sylvia's body with a butt, then panicked and instructed the children to take Sylvia back down into the basement and strip her naked. She then told Ricky to run to the nearest payphone and called the police. Upon the police's arrival, Gertrude gave them the note that Sylvia had written, claiming that for the past hour prior to Sylvia's death, Gertrude had been taking care of her and doctoring her. Mm-hmm. They read the note, but they were a little suspicious, because she was found in the basement bedroom covered in more than 150 burns and cuts all over her mutilated body Right. in various states of healing. Yeah. At some point, Jenny was able to get an officer alone and told them, Get me out of here and I will tell you everything. Thank you, Jenny. With Jenny's statement, officers arrested Gertrude, Paula, Stephanie, John Jr., Coy Hubbard, and Ricky Hobbs on suspicions of Sylvia's murder. Gertrude initially declined having any involvement in the death, but by October 27th, she confessed to knowing the children had physically and emotionally abused her. And I'm mm-hmm. going to read this. Um, word for word from Wikipedia because just the extent of her wounds is so much that there's there's not an easy way to describe it. So, an autopsy of Sylvia Likens turned up over 100 cigarette burns on her body, in addition to various second- and third-degree burns, severe bruising, and muscle and nerve damage. In her death throes, Sylvia bit through her lips nearly severing each of them. Her vaginal cavity was nearly swollen shut, although an examination of the canal determined that her hymen was still intact, largely discrediting everything that Gertrude had been saying. Mm -hmm. The official cause of death was brain swelling, internal hemorrhaging of the brain, and shock. This case became one of the most terrible crimes ever committed in Indiana. In fact, the prosecution sought the death penalty for all who were charged in Sylvia's murder. However, Paula's time in court was interrupted when she had to be rushed to the hospital in order to birth the baby that she was not carrying, according to her mother. Jesus. What made this case even more exacerbated was the fact that there were four attorneys, all of whom were trying to pit the blame...
0: On everybody else. On
1: everybody else. Ugh. Like, the family had one attorney, Ricky Hobbs had one attorney... Coy Hubbard had another attorney.
0: No, I'll try to blame everyone else. All, yeah.
1: It's a blame game, yeah. Gertrude's attorney attempted to shift oh yeah, Gertrude had her own attorney, that's what it was. Gertrude's attorney attempted to shift blame to the children, claiming that she was too ill, frail, weak, and basically just incapable of committing such acts. Unfortunately, this was sort of proven semi my true by the fact that she very well could have been completely mentally unstable. Um this also turned out to be the most damaging of testimony for her. Gertrude still stood by the fact that Sylvia was prostituting herself to older gentlemen in the neighborhood and that she was starting fights within the family home. In order to corroborate this testimony, her 11-year-old daughter, Marie, was called to the stand as a witness. Initially, she did back everything up that her mother said, until during cross-examination, Marie suddenly screamed, God help me, before admitting all that she had said before was a lie. I went to recount in very graphic details how her mother and siblings tortured Sylvia. Marie's testimony was largely responsible for the outcomes of the trials. Gertrude was found guilty of murder in the first degree to the shock of the people in Indianapolis. She did not receive the death penalty.
0: That is a shock.
1: Yeah. But rather life in prison with no possibility of parole. Despite public outcry, she was paroled in 1985. Hmm. She then moved to Iowa and changed her name to Nadine Van Fossen and died of lung cancer on June 16, 1990. Paula was convicted of second-degree murder. She appealed and was granted a new trial, but before the new trial started, she entered into a plea deal and pled guilty to voluntary manslaughter and was sentenced to 2 to 21 years. Despite an attempted prison break, she was proled in March of 1972 and released completely in March of 1974,
0: despite she... attempting to escape prison.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. She
0: changed her name to Paula Pace
1: and went invisible until 2012 when an anonymous tip was sent to the school that she was working at.
0: Yeah, I, re- I remember, yes.
1: Uh-huh, uh-huh, um, saying that she was a convicted murderer. Yeah. yeah. She was fired from her position not because she was a convicted murderer. But because but she because, lied about it. But because she provided false information on her employee application. Yeah. Stephanie was the only one charged um, who was granted a special trial with all charges dropped. This is likely because she agreed to turn evidence against her family, so backing up my statement, she gained a conscience. John Jr. was convicted of manslaughter at the age of 12. He was fucking 12. He served two years at the Indiana State Reformatory before he was released. He changed his name to John Blake, had a religious awakening, which helped show him the error of his ways. And he showed actual public remorse for what he had done as a child. He had a successful job, family, but died of cancer in 2005 at the age of 52. Mm. Coy Hubbard was convicted of manslaughter, but served only two years. But he was tried for another murder in 1982, but he was acquitted. Mm. He lost his job in 2007 when the movie American Crime, uh, which is a movie about Sylvia, Mm. came out. He then died later that year. My sources didn't say how, but he died. Ricky Hobbs was convicted of manslaughter and, like the other boys, only served two years. He died of cancer in 1972 at the age of 21. Some good news. Baby Denny was adopted into a nice family, as was Paula's daughter. Yay. I am sorry. I had to deeply summarize the trial because this got so long. Yeah. Uh, But if anyone wants to know more, 100% I recommend Murderpedia and wikipedia because they had a lot more information than i thought they would and the um sources to back them up yeah you can also check out a couple of books the indiana torture slaying and house of evil by john dean and the basement by kate millett uh there is also a documentary by investigation discovery titled born bad which first aired on november 30th 2009 then, of course, the movie I mentioned earlier, An American Crime, which is directly based on the life and murder of Sylvia Likens. If you're looking for someone, something a little bit more fictiony, then The Girl Next Door is right up your alley, and it's very loosely based on the case. So, that is the story of the murder and torture of Sylvia
0: Likens um that was your worst one wants to go, uh who wants to go jump off a bridge <laughs> um i was actually gonna bring up house of evil because that is one of the most evil mm-hmm. some of the worst stories i've ever heard and every time someone says they're gonna do it I'm, i i have to skip it because i'm like i've heard of this there were actually times. some things that you said that I didn't even know about. And... Yeah.
1: That, uh, I literally used um, Murderpedia for most most of my information. Yeah, like, and Murderpedia has, like, so multiple much. sources
0: for it. Yeah. So. That's one of the things that I like about Murderpedia is that they have, like, multiple articles listed and stuff like that. I... <sighs> it's... It's rough. It's such like, a rough case because not only was... She physically, emotionally, and sexually abusing her, she had other people do it too. And And these kids just went with it. They didn't question the morality of it. And I think part of it is like when you grow up around somebody who obviously does not question whether those things are good or bad... Your Uh, sense of morality is also skewed, but, like, god damn. It –
1: well, in something else that I didn't mention, because it was, like, purely speculation on the – on literally everything, is that Ricky Hobbs, who took pleasure in being her protege – Yeah. Um, one of the theories is that they might have been sleeping together.
0: Oh, god.
1: But he's 12, Yeah, or he was 12, and she's was 37, so, um, I mean, I hope not, but also with all the other crazy stuff that was going on,
0: entirely possible. I just think it's it's crazy because i know like when you're a kid you see somebody else doing something that like you've been told is bad and you're like oh well they're doing it so it can't be that bad but Mm -hmm. like to physically see somebody suffering like that you would think that would be, be enough for somebody to say oh that's not good like i don't feel good doing this but then Uh, But then, also, you don't know what sort of psychological torture that she's been putting them through, if any. And well, and also, you've got this case of
1: Judy Duke and her going to her mother, and her mother saying that's what happens when a child exactly gets punished. Like, yeah, like, no, that's not what happened when a child gets punished.
0: Literally, it's the end of, yeah, sometimes you have to beat your kids. No. No, 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 absolutely not. No, even the idea, even the idea of physical abuse in any sort of way Oh no, yeah—any uh, anything to make them think, "Oh, I'm going to be hit." Yeah, that's wrong. That is inherently abuse already. It's it's emotional, it's physical, it's exactly. It's I everything. Not, yeah. Fuck. And she was story.
1: using. She was using a freaking paddle. She was using a belt. I hate that story, and I hate you for telling it. Thank you. <laughs> I hate that story. I hate you for telling it. Thank you so much for telling it. Um, Anna, moving on. Grace, what is your story?
0: <laughs> fuck. Can, can I just go to sleep now? Um, um no. Fuck. Okay, so I'm covering um, something I actually didn't know about. Um, Hannah House. What's that? Exactly. I didn't know what it was either. So my sources are historicindianapolis.com, fox59.com, another fox59.com article another another fox <laughs> another, another dot com article I, I, um i used oh, i and, used like six fox51 news articles actually and a um facebook post by fox59 news <laughs> okay yeah um oh there was actually uh, Wikipedia too. I didn't list oh, okay. it. I didn't put it on here, but I did also use Wikipedia. There isn't a um Wikipedia page for Hannah House as far as I know, but I found it on like haunted places in Indiana or in Indianapolis on. Wikipedia. Oh, okay,
1: so it was like a Wikipedia, a Wikipedia. The Wikipedia.
0: Yes, it was a it was a <laughs> Wikipedia uh, article that was like um all the haunted places in haunted. Indianapolis and stuff like okay,
1: that. Okay, and they give you like short little blurbs. yeah. yeah. Okay.
0: So, Hannah House is located on the south side of Indianapolis at thirty-eight hundred one Madison Avenue. It is a twenty-four room house. I want to say that's McMansion. a mansion. Yeah. Built in eighteen fifty-eight um, by Alexander Hannah. I thought you. So, <laughs> I thought you were going to say Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> yeah, uh, I almost wrote it once or twice <laughs> while writing this. Uh, so I'll just start with Alexander Hanna, who is a highly respected civil civic leader. You know how some people seem to have a million interests and just as many jobs like what? Like there are people who are just like, I like this, I'm gonna have a job in this, I'm gonna have business in this, I they just have so many jobs, and you don't know how they have so much time.
1: Oh, okay. I was gonna say like a jack of all trades, but no, that's not what that is.
0: Yeah. So That's this guy. He had businesses in farming, prospecting, but also served as the sheriff, postmaster, circuit court clerk, and as a member of the Indiana General Assembly. But most importantly, he, like, his home was also a stop on the Underground Railroad. Oh, good! So, Alexander Hanna was born in southern Indiana in 1821 and trained as a harness maker. Mm -mm. Harness maker. I'm assuming for, like, cows... Like oh, for dogs. Hunting. Did they use those back then? I don't think they use harn- Ooh,
1: horses. Horses. No, not cows. Cows, you cannot harness a
0: cow easily. No, but there are those, like, big ones um, that they use- I saw in a documentary once. It's fine. Um, it's fine. Okay. In 1850, he headed to California because of the gold rush- Hannah earned enough money to become part owner of a ranch in California, and after five years, he sold off his various businesses, uh, business interests, and moved back to Indiana, finally settling in Indianapolis. Hmm. Okay. Hannah's father, Samuel, was president of the Indiana Central Railroad, and Alexander found work with that company when he returned. The Hannah family owned a shit ton of property in Marion County. He himself acquired 240 acres of South Indianapolis and began construction on Hannah House. The Indianapolis Southport Toll Road, which is the first toll road in Marion County, crossed his property and he collected tolls from travelers along his section of the road and the major east to what? what? I'm sorry, I'm not sure that's legal. <laughs> this was the 1800s. <laughs> I'm so.
1: not sure it's legal. Oh, he's a troll. He's a troll. It's a toll
0: road. No,
1: he's a troll of the toll it's road. It's a toll road.
0: Okay. The major east to west street south of his his house still has the name Hannah Avenue. In 1872, Hannah married a woman named Elizabeth Jackson, and the couple constructed a uh, service building southeast of the Kitchen Wing. The new addition housed a smokehouse, wash house, milk cooling room, summer kitchen, and servants' quarters. I want a milk cooling room. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, Though the couple hoped for children, uh, local lore has it that Elizabeth miscarried with their only child. Oh. Uh, There are no records of a child's death associated with the house, but at the Hannah family cemetery plot, there is a small unmarked grave stone between, uh, Alexander and Elizabeth suggesting an infant burial. Oh, This seems to have spawned the first of, like, many folklore tales of hauntings on the property, including a ghostly presence of a stillborn child in one of the upper bedrooms. That's... Which is the worst thing I was I was gonna could say, ever imagine. I don't want to see that. That... No. But, um, so, they, other than that, they seem to enjoy a happy life, um, and the couple entertained and continued um, helping as a stop on the Underground Railroad. And according to local legend, obviously he was an abolitionist during the years before the Civil War, and with hundreds of wooded acres around the house and not a lot of neighbors, it was obviously the perfect location to operate a sanctuary for slaves heading toward Canada for years without detection. Unfortunately, local legend... Also says that one night, a group of men and women running from slavery were hiding in the Hannah House cellar, waiting for the right time to make their getaway, when someone knocked over an oil lamp, setting <gasps> the room on fire. No! Okay, I know this story now. It sounded familiar. Uh, yeah, None of it sounded familiar up until this point. So, the fire spread quickly, and unable to escape, they allegedly died in, in minutes from smoke inhalation and burns. hmm The legend continues to say that the men and women in that cellar were hastily and temporarily buried by Hannah's servants in the dirt of the cellar floor in an attempt to cover up the incident so that the Underground Railroad could continue Mm -hmm. undiscovered. There's no real way to verify the story because it's not like that's something that would have been recorded because it was technically illegal. Yeah. But families in the area have passed down the legend for generations and... Current neighbors say that there are partially collapsed tunnels that lead in the direction of Hannah House. Okay. Elizabeth and Alexander were laid to rest at Crown Hill Cemetery, having died without a child in 1888 and 1895. The Hannah House sat dormant for four years until 1899 when Roman Oller, a German immigrant, purchased the house and 21 acres of surrounding property. Oler was a Civil War veteran who owned a jewelry business in the area, and during the time he lived there, the porch on the front of the house was replaced with a wider one uh, made of concrete, mm-hmm. and a lot of outbuildings which still stand, and his daughter Romina Oler Elder and her husband and family were the next owners of the house, and they lived there until 1962. Alright. Nice. Apparently after this, the house was empty for about 30 years, and during this time is when the really specific claims of hauntings became local legend. Hannah House was recognized as a historical landmark in 1978, but it wasn't until 1980 that it was first used as a venue for haunted houses. Oh, (laughs) really? Yeah. Since then, the property has had countless news crews, psychics, and paranormal investigators visit.
1: It's a haunted, Um, haunted house.
0: It's a haunted haunted house Uh, and a lot of them have reported unusual occurrences. The indie ghost hunters have been investigating the house for several years and they say they felt the presence of some kind of spirit on numerous occasions Mm -hmm. and they actually went back and brought a reporter from Fox 59 along and I couldn't find the video that was supposed to go with the article I found because it was like from 2013 and it just wasn't there anymore. But I do know that they did experience something and nobody's sure what it was, but um Fox fifty nine's Eric Levy reported feeling something odd while he was with them. <laughs> That's all the information I could get.
1: Feeling something odd.
0: Feeling something odd. Yeah.
1: Oh, how do you feel? Um, oh I don't know, no, something something odd. odd.
0: <laughs> yeah. Kinda weird. A little. Yeah. Anyway. Investigators and past owners believe that those slaves still haunt the house to this day. Uh, Other people have actually witnessed ghosts of slaves and have heard disembodied (laughs) voices moaning and whispering in the cellars. A lot of people have seen doors swing open for no reason, and they've experienced cold drafts without explanation. There's an apparition of what many people think is Alexander Hannah himself that's been spotted on the property. And weirdly, (laughs) Flying Spoons... (laughs) flying spoons like literally just f- spoons just
1: whoosh, randomly sorry pun here flying spoons instead of flying saucers
0: flying spoons <laughs> i feel like there could be a good pun from that hold on unidentified flying spoon uh it that would be it would um, still be
1: ufos
0: no that wouldn't be ufo it's a UFS.
1: Unidentified flying... Sp-
0: oh, Object. yeah. Spoon.
1: Spoons, yep.
0: There is an O in sp- <laughs> 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 They just and moved it- the O. <laughs> so I think the most interesting thing is that the mansion was actually given the nickname The House That Reeks of Death. I'm because s- it occasionally, one of the bedrooms just smells like rotting flesh. But the next day, it smells like roses. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and this isn't just, uh, localized to that room. Uh, some, some people say that the smell just kind of just encapsulates the entire area.
1: So does, so does the smell of death move or just like the entire room or like little Apparently, mostly bubbles. it's the room,
0: but other people have said it's the house. I don't know. I found another video on Fox 59's Facebook page with some (laughs) facts about Hannah House that I mentioned. And I went through the, um, the comments because I wanted to see what people were saying. Yeah. Um, and I found a lot of people who had either visited the house or had heard about it when they were growing up. Mm -hmm. One person mentioned that she spent months on end in that house because their father was on the, um... Their father did the haunted house every year and was the director of the Indianapolis chapter of the Indiana Ghost Tractors. Tractors. <laughs> wow. In trackers? <laughs> Yes, trackers. trackers. Okay. Tractors. She confirmed that you can smell roses uh, in what she calls the grandmother's room and cinnamon and cigar smoke throughout the house when Alexander Hanna's spirit is around specifically.
1: Oh, no, not gonna lie, I would like that smell.
0: Cinnamon and cigar, cigar smoke. yeah.
1: My grandpa used to smoke cigars. It always smelled like cherry. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: she also said she'd experienced a lot of paranormal events, and she said she once had to run out of the attic, but didn't elaborate other than to say that there's definitely some major activity. It's a little spooky in the attic. A little spook spook.
1: A little spook spook, spook.
0: Just walking Another up. Another woman <laughs> went there for <laughs> Another woman went there for a wedding and said when she stepped foot inside, she felt an evil presence, which is insta- which Which, is interesting. Which is Instagram. Which is interesting, considering I didn't find anyone else saying they felt something evil.
1: Yeah. It was just her. Yeah. So maybe she's having, like, a bad reaction to the electromagnetic fields, which is very much a thing.
0: I'm wondering if she didn't feel- Evil. I'm wondering if what she felt was like despair, all the pain, and anger. In despair, yeah. yeah. Another visitor stayed the night and felt someone rubbing the back of their head, like they were brushing their hair.
1: Oh, that's sweet. Creepy, it... but sweet.
0: Yeah, as well as seeing the closet door fly open with no one else <sighs> in the room. <laughs> honey, I'm this home. This one creeped me out, though. This one did, um, creep me out. Someone said they went on a tour about 30 years ago, and as they were going down to the cellar, something grabbed their ankle. <gasps> that is- But here's the thing. Solid brick on either side of the stairwell going down with no gaps between the stairs themselves.
1: That is, like, my nightmare.
0: Yes. Like- So that's, like,
1: no, no, no. Like, no. even walking up my stairs, that is my nightmare, and there's
0: nothing. Exactly. So, uh, another person who took the tour said that there was a room with a baby carriage that was roped off, and there was, so there was nobody in there. Yeah. Uh, but as they passed by the room, they saw the baby carriage rolling across the room.
1: That's creepy.
0: Yeah. Concerning. Somebody said they lived in a house just east of the Hannah House on the same property said they also, their house also seemed to be haunted. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if it was one of these extra buildings, or if it was just, like, I don't know. Because it was part of the Hannah family property. Oh. That was, like, divided.
1: Okay. And you did so, say that there were extra buildings, like, on the outside.
0: That they could have, yeah.
1: They could have torn it down, or they could have, like,
0: Exactly. Done. I don't know. Yeah. But they said it also seemed to be haunted. Things would come up missing or be rearranged from where they left them. Like, just all sorts of crazy stuff. And I also think, I just think it's interesting considering it's on the same property. Yes. And if there were tunnels underneath Hannah House, I'm wondering if that house was also used as part of the Underground Railroad. And that's why it might be haunted too. Possible. Yeah. uh, So like I said, the home was used as a haunted house for decades and in more recent years as an event space for weddings and private events. However, it is now listed as permanently closed on Google. That happened this year. So I'm fairly sure it's not open for any sort of visiting, including trespassing. So be wary if you're into that sort of thing. Um, But yeah, that was Hannah House. Okay, besides the fact that I keep
1: thinking you're going to say Alexander Hamilton. I, say like, oh. I know, every time I went to hype Alexander, I would be Ham Hannah. Yeah, a few times you did say Ham and then Hannah. Yeah. No, like, like that one part about them being in the, under the house in that little hideaway space, and then them yeah. turning over the lamp and it burning and dying of smoke inhalation. I know that story, but I feel like that's from something A else. different one. I'm thinking yeah. I
0: keep thinking that it's because it sounds really familiar but none of the other parts of the story do. Are familiar at all. Yeah. But um there was this story that I was gonna do that was so good but it was it literally would have been like two or three pages. It was about this bridge where um it when they were building it a guy fell into the concrete and he um got stuck like the weight of the concrete just kept pulling him down and they couldn't pull him back out because he was like 10 feet down and they had thrown a rope down to him but they couldn't pull him up because the concrete was setting but he was still like sinking and like all that was left apparently was like part of his arm that had or in some versions it's part of his arm and they have to like saw off his arm. Oh. And yeah. in other versions it's just the saw that's sticking out. And there's also one where a uh, part of it where um a woman is trying to take her doctor her baby to the doctor and she gets run off the road because a car doesn't see her or something. Oh. And she falls off and she lives, but the baby dies, and then she dies, like, a couple weeks later of a broken heart, and you can hear her, um, at night, like, crying, or when On you're the bridge. going bridge. Yeah, and, or, and you can hear her when you're, like, driving under the bridge, mm-hmm. you can hear, like, crying or wailing, and you have to honk so you don't hear it. And it was, That's... it was a crazy story. And there are these, like, arches within the bridge where um, where homeless people, like, sleep. Mm-hmm. And um, there are people who say that they've, like, been in there and that it's been really creepy. But it, re- it was really just two pages, but I thought it was so interesting that I thought I would mention it. It's a bridge in Avon, Indiana.
1: In Avon. So, okay. Yeah. Remind me not to go to Avon because I don't want to experience that.
0: Yeah, it was very... It was very creepy, but I was so short.
1: Oh, my gosh. I, Like, I know mine was bad, but yours, like, broke my heart. Like,
0: yours was awful. Mine was
1: awful. Mine was so bad. That was worse <laughs> than Gary Ridgway. <laughs> that was so bad. It's, it's because of her age. She's 16, and these children are doing it to her. It's also, like, the amount of things, ugh. I, everything about my story was just. Awful, awful, horrible, every single bit. Mhm. Yep. Okay. So thank you guys so much for listening. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Myths and Misfortunes,
0: or Twitter at Miss Misfortune, or you can just search for us using the full name Myths and Misfortunes. We do pop up.
1: You can also send us an email to Myths and Misfortunes at gmail.com. Also, please check out our website, mythsandmisfortunes.com.
0: Our theme music was composed by McKean Fulbright, and our art was created by Heather Marie Adkins.
1: Their websites can be found in the description below.
0: And please don't forget to rate, review, subscribe. Ah, ah, ah. ah, ah. ah. I don't know where. <laughs> <laughs> what do you uh, count chocolate? Count- ah, 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 ah. Oh no, that's the
1: Muppet. Count, count. <laughs> count, count. Count, 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 count. count.
0: <laughs> ah, 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 ah. <laughs> How many subscribers do we have? One, two, three. <laughs> uh, three subscribers. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> okay. Thanks so Thank much for, you listening, for listening, guys. <laughs> Bye. <Bye-bye>. Bye. <laughs>